Voyager. Season 4 we have encountered the Borg, Elizabeth, Lindsay, and Will. Continue the theological discourse through the Elder Quadrant. Resistance is futile. Irrelevant. Your appeal to my humanity is pointless. I can't be sure, but I think there's more going on here than just a simple hello. Well, I think it's time we get back to our bridge. No argument there. Voyjourn, Season 4. Greetings, friends, and we have encountered the Borg. We are about to do the uh, Season 3 finale, Scorpion, Part 1, uh, and uh, here is the synopsis. Still on its journey home, the Voyager enters Borg space, only to find the Borg Collective on the losing end of a desperate war against biotechnology, uh, against a biotechnical race designated as Species 8472. While investigating a defeated Borg armada, Harry Kim becomes infected from a brief close contact with an 8472, an infection that starts to eat him alive from within. Janeway turns to her Leonardo da Vinci holodeck program for inspiration and devises a risky plan to book safe passage through Borg space by working together with the Borg to defeat Species 8472. As they begin negotiations, Species 8472 attacks, and we're left with a cliffhanger. Yes, well, I found this episode quite stressful for a number of reasons. One of them was I thought Janeway was making some particularly unfathomably bad decisions as far as I was concerned. Um, if you've got a species that can blow up the Borg, would your first reaction be, let's go back and see what it is? <laughs> it probably wouldn't be mine. Mine would be, get the hell out of there. And then to beam them aboard, um, beam crew people aboard um, this sort of skeleton Borg ship after this attack without knowing what you're dealing with, with the promise, we'll get you out of there if there's trouble. How many episodes have we watched where it said, I can't get a lock on them, Captain. The X, Y and Z is interfering with it. But that doesn't seem to stop her doing this. And I was just, I was, my head was blown off by that stage. I was appalled. It's actually really difficult to make that phrase, I can't get a lock on them, Captain, without saying, I cannot get a lock on them, Captain, which takes us all the way back to the very beginning, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I, 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 I love this. This is one of my favourite episodes and I had forgotten um, uh, what a great cliffhanger it is. I, I think I probably would have watched both episodes, but um, I was playing D&D last night and so uh, I ran out of time and only had time to watch the one episode. And, and I'm really glad that I have actually, because that, that feeling of cliffhanger, I mean, I know how it turns out in the, in the big, but but just not knowing the details of exactly uh, how they're going to get out of this situation uh, is, is a great cliffhanger. And I, 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 um, it's funny because I agree with you that, you know, Janeway is portrayed here as, as making some very quick, very aggressive sort of decisions. But I like it, you know. I mean, I think for me it, it's part of the whole... This really is a moment for quick thinking and, and we've got to make the big decisions. It's, it's like, you know, the, the decision she makes with the caretaker. Um, you know, there's, there's no chance to sort of hang around 
You know, if this was uh, Star Trek uh, Discovery, they would have taken about six episodes to do this, and they would have had one episode which was all just the discussion about what should we do next, you know, uh, with, with all the crew. But um, no, I, I, I really like this, and, and I'm pro Janeway, I think, rather than Chicote. They have gone to great lengths to try and give us a, a, a clear insight into Janeway's state of mind with the Da Vinci holodeck stuff and 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 her, uh, I think sometimes over melodramatic statements like, three years ago, three years ago I didn't even know your name and now I can't imagine a day without you." Oh God! Oh, oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and the other the other one is. I guess I am totally alone. Like, you know, like, so we're getting this kind of insight into, into the stress and strain that she's experiencing as, as a captain. Well, she's bought it on herself, for God's sake. I mean, I've got no problem with making tough decisions, Lindsay. I've got no problem with even making fairly quick decisions. I do have an immense problem with making what I see as absolutely stupid decisions, <laughs> especially based on what you lot have trained me to see as Star Trek tropes <laughs> as we've been going through. And we're relying on something, apparently, that we know from countless episodes is going to fail them. We just know that's going to happen. Come on, writers, you can do better than this. We've been anticipating this encounter um, between the Borg and Species 568 one that's us um since wolf 359 really or all the way back to when q first flung the enterprise across the galaxy and we met the borg for the first time um th there's this been this build-up that that we uh, star trek fans have known that the borg are in the delta quadrant that they are this long distance away and that at some stage during the seven-year journey that the 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 voyager will encounter uh the borg um and so the whole whole premise there is that the Borg will be the most terrifying thing that um, Star Trek crew members will encounter whilst they're in the Delta Quadrant, only to discover in this episode that um, uh, that uh, our, our, our wonderful friends, uh, Species 8472, are actually uh, got the Borg scared and running. The only thing I was really satisfied about in this episode is when the Borg, you see their cubes come up and they start to say, resistance is few, and then boof. <laughs> our embryonic lizard looking species just blows them out of the water I like that right. bit you know, because <laughs> that was good because the Borg are used to just disintegrating and integrating everything and to have them blown up like that was actually quite satisfying I thought I think, uh, I mean, I, I agree with you, Will, that, you know, in terms of canon and for Star Trek fans, this, this has been a big build up um, and when you had that first little um, uh, teaser bit before the um, intro uh, with the Borg cubes getting blown up, as Elizabeth was saying, if, if you've come from that sort of fandom, I think that has a much more of an impact. I'm a bit sorry that in terms of people who maybe only uh, start watching with Voyager, that you don't have more Easter eggs dropped along the way that, that do exactly what you've been talking about that that mm. sort of foreshadow where we're going to come up to the Borg at some stage that's going to be a real problem we don't know what we're going to do when we get there because um you know they, they seem invincible um and I think if you'd have had more of that build up through the the past uh three seasons 
um, then it would have had even more impact uh, when you finally see those four cubes. And then, uh, as Elizabeth says, they don't even get through their first spiel before they get blown up. And you think, whoa, what did, what did that? What did that? Um, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so then we have the unutterably stupid decision not to just ask what did that, but let's go and put ourselves right at its mercy by investigating <laughs> in a really idiotic way. I just could not get over that, Janeway, making those decisions. Sorry. That's, uh, it's consistent <laughs> Federation activity. Um, <laughs> let's go check it out. Let's have a, have a look, um, investigate. <laughs> uh, what is it? Uh, um, assimilate versus investigate. I thought that was a really interesting mm, yep, thing yep. that, uh, that, that uh, Janeway says, says as, um, as she's going through. So she doesn't know what she's going to encounter. That's what bugged me. You know, you're going in and you know there's this powerful enemy that if it can blow up the Borg, it probably can flatten you into tiny little pieces. But you go there anyway. And the other thing that I thought was a bit of a logic problem was in the entire galaxy and this quadrant, are they saying that the Borg patrol the entire border of this quadrant. Is that what they're saying? This is the only, you've got to go through yeah. Borg space or through species, I forget their name, whatever the number is. You've, that's your only way out, that they've got the entire border of this quadrant in the galaxy patrolled? Yeah, I, I felt there no, was a stretch there. That they, it was. That they're caught in this two-dimensional space thing again where they actually, you know, and even calling it the Northwest Passage to try and throw back to this idea of the... The, the way through uh, a dangerous area just kind of has this surface quality moving around space, whereas we know that space is actually, you know, in all directions. Yes. There's, there's as, absolutely as... no way we can actually guard uh, a, a, an entire region of space. That's well, what I thought. I, I mean, I, I think I, that one doesn't worry me so much because, I mean, I think the, the idea of the Borg is that they are just so many of them that that you know while of course you can't guard a whole 3d border you you can have you know outposts and cubes and whatever uh in most of the space and i i don't think it's the whole it's the whole quadrant it's actually enough of the quadrant that to go around it in whichever direction, direction. 3d yeah. you choose is going to add you know double or triple the time or whatever um so, but but just coming back to your comment, Elizabeth, about um, you know going to investigate and and uh, knowing from Star Trek tropes that you're relying on uh, a technology which always breaks down at the critical moment. I yeah. I, I think I I was reminded uh, when you were talking about that of the fact that what we don't see mm. um, because of the nature of fiction is the thousands upon thousands of missions where the technology works perfectly. Yep. Um, uh, we, we don't see that and so we kind of forget that that they rely on the transporter because it works so flawlessly almost all the time and it just so happens that the ones we see are the ones where it goes wrong and so something interesting and exciting happens um, and, and I was thinking about that in terms of you know the, the whole way that we look at texts and even things like you know the New Testament we're getting highlights where uh, Jesus does or says something particularly interesting that people thought, oh, I've got to capture that. that that's really... Um, but we don't get all the day-to-day -day stuff, um, you know, and, and I think that that's just an interesting uh, reality about the way we as humans capture texts is we only capture the, uh, the interesting bits, the times when things go wrong 
uh, rather than the, the norm normality of, of life. That's true. Though with a Star Trek trope, you know if it's a tense situation and they're in danger, <laughs> it will break down. It does it every single time. So it might work when they're moving provisions around and getting supplies and making friends with nice planets, but it's never going to work when they're dealing with an enemy. We know that. And I was just intrigued by I can get a lock on their bones. So I'm yeah. envisaging Skeletal this skeleton <laughs> appearing yeah. with all the flesh has sort of somehow been removed because it's been plucked out of the body. Oops, oops. Sorry, Captain, this experimental kind of transporter didn't work exactly the way we expected. But exactly. we do have all of Harry's bones, so it's okay. <laughs> yes, well... Yeah, I mean, maybe they should have gone for an epidermal uh, lock. That would have just given them a whole bag of skin, wouldn't it? I mean... That's right. I did think that was stretching things a bit. But to knowingly go into a really profoundly dangerous, unknown danger in a quick decision like that without even thinking about it, I would have been getting the bloody hell out of there. I would have been thinking, well, while the Borg's occupied with being blown up by this other species... I don't care if it's going to add 10 years to the journey. Let's find another place where we don't have these rampaging enemies who will, if we get in between them, will destroy us. That is a yeah. guarantee. We will be destroyed. I would be hightailing it. That's why I agreed with Chakotay. It would be better to go the long way. Well, with that in mind, you're going to absolutely love what the Voyager Fox gets into next week with the Scorpion Part Ooh. Two. Uh, I have to say that, oh. that, that if they if they made a, a whole bunch of mistakes in in Part One, then uh, each and every one of them is exacerbated by future decisions of the same ilk that happened in Part Two. So, and the the title is a dead giveaway because it tells me that Chakotay's story will prove to be true. It tells me that. You know, I know that in the next episode, the Borg's going to be traitorous and vile at some point in the journey once they get what they want. You know that's going to happen. What well, I don't know is how they're going to counteract that. It's in their nature. Um, a scorpion <laughs> can only be a scorpion. And I thought that was something I really wanted to talk about today because, I mean, to what extent is this is this true and, and what mm. does it mean? Um Will colonisers always be colonisers? Is there any hope um, for one culture or another um, because of what they've done in the past? Or is there space for redemption? Um, and I, I think whilst you're correct that the Scorpion tale actually becomes um, you know, a, a set narrative for what happens in the next two episodes, I think from this point onwards, though, the question about the nature of the Scorpion is actually a question that continues to be asked over and over again um, because of the ongoing relationship that Voyager has with the Borg through the next, um, for through really the rest of the series. You mean they're not going to go away? No. no. <laughs> in fact, th that Scorpion question is still being asked in series like Picard and, and yeah. others, uh, even, mm. even to this day. So, so that, 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 that's a question I really would like us to take some time to look at today is, is um, do we believe that, that if somebody's nature has caused them to act in a particular way, that that is all they can be? Or, or, or is there an opportunity to actually um, be, be different? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big Christian question in a sense, isn't it? It's about redemption. It's about the possibility of, of being able to, um, you know, change one's course, metanoia. Um, and and uh, the question is, 
is that a real capacity? And and I think for me, part of what feeds into this and, and uh, is interesting in this episode is also this idea that there is one general approach of a species, you know, that any Borg you come up against, you know how they're going to react and so forth. And maybe in the case of the Borg, you can argue, well, they are a collective type of, of being, and so that makes sense. But uh, we don't know that necessarily about Species Day 472. And so part of the, the, the playfulness for me is thinking about the fact that if we were to ask this of humans, I think most people would answer, well, it depends. Some people seem to be able to change. Other people don't seem to be able to change or choose not to change. Um, and, and you can't necessarily rely on whether a human being will act as the scorpion or whether they will actually be able to negotiate a different way forward and get across the stream successfully. I think that's right, Lindsay. I'd agree with that because clearly people do experience transformation in their lives and they do do that sort of turnaround of metanoia where they, you know, something really happens and just goes a har in their head and they have that and whatever experience it is and they see life differently on the other side of that. Um, I'm thinking about that, Will, the episode I watched with you. I think it was in Deep Space Nine. It was the space station That's with right, the yep. young, the baby Jem Hadar they found. That's right, And it, yep. it didn't matter what they did. That adolescent Jem Hadar was just Jem Hadar. He couldn't change. He couldn't see anything different. It's like he'd been programmed that way. And it was impossible to change him no matter what. I can't remember the dude that was wor- he's the character working with him. Odo, um, yeah. Yeah, it was Odo. Odo. He couldn't, no matter what he did, it just couldn't change the intrinsic nature of this boy because he'd just been programmed that way, really, with his DNA, and that's all there was to it. I don't know we can say that about humans, but clearly it it demonstrates some species can't change. But to some extent, yeah, yeah. to some extent we do have that in a human context. I mean... I guess uh, if you're an alcoholic, then you're you're always going to be an alcoholic, and you work out how to how to mitigate, how to how to manage um, that, and and make that decision. Um, if if uh, you know, so so there are certainly aspects of of the human species that that will will always be the scorpion, um, and and part of I guess not stinging the fox as we're traveling through our lives is actually being aware of the scorpion in us. Um, what is part of our nature that might be harmful to the people around us? Um, and the biggest danger then apparently that 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 I, I feel in this is actually denying we have scorpions um, mm. within ourselves. Um, if we actually say, no, well, there's nothing harmful about me, it's highly likely that we're not looking at our own tail. Yeah, uh, and uh, I mean, I think the the other thing that I'm thinking as you're talking, Will, is that part of what Janeway decides is that she is going to be a catalyst for change, you know? So, mm-hmm. so I, and, and I think, actually, for me, this is the beauty of Janeway's decision and, and where I think it ties into the Leonardo da Vinci stuff is mm-hmm. that, that she has the imagination to imagine that the Borg can be different, that the Borg can uh, lose their scorpionness. Um, and and that she chooses to be the catalyst for that change, to say, I think I can inject myself into this situation 
uh, such that the Borg cannot be Borg at least for a little while. And and I, I love that. I love that the the shut part of it. I love the 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 imagination, the thinking of a new way uh, for Borg to be Borg, which, as you say, um, you know, presages some of the explorations we do of the Borg in in series to come over the next you know forty years. I think that if it was just her, that would be fine. But she's putting all these other people at risk. And she has no way of knowing at any point that the Borg won't be a scorpion and sting the fox. She has no way of knowing that. And in fact, their track record would suggest they will try and do just that. So if it was just her, perhaps. But her her first officer is not happy about it. She's putting a whole crew at risk. So I'm not sure I think that I would have made that decision if I'd been in her place. I don't know. It's very hard think, to say. I think Chakotay picks that up because that's her scorpion. Like he, he says to her, you just don't know when to step back. You just don't yes. know when to, to let this go. And, and I mean, for me, the most confronting part of Janeway's behavior in all this is when um, she says to the doctor, right, here's the plan. You're going to upload all the information into your matrix and then um, we'll, she uses the word simply erase your program. Imagine if she had a scientist on board and said, what we'll do is you'll be the only one who knows this. And if they get on board, we'll simply kill you so that they can't access it. Yes. Um, she, she completely disregarded the, the, the sentience um, and, and validity and, and individually and rights of the doctor by actually just deciding arbitrarily that they would store it in him and that they, the way they would actually keep their their uh, side of the bargain, their sting in the tail, was that they would just kill him to stop them from being able to have the information. Yeah, I thought she was making some decisions, even small ones that were showing that, for me, she'd slipped into a mode of being that wasn't healthy. You know, not eating, not sleeping, relying yep. on, no matter how much of a genius he was, a medieval inventor to actually get your inspiration from to deal mm. with these Borg. Um, it was a nice thought, but, you know, his response is, let's come and pray to God. Wasn't going to cut the mustard, really, as far a as... A greater I'm imagination. Concerned. I love it. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, let us kneel I in that. prayer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I... I the fact is that, and, and this is one of those episodes that brings this back to us, that Starfleet is at least a pseudo-military organisation. And, and the reality is, is that in, in a military organisation, the commanding officers have that role and it's given to them. So, you know, when they say, OK, you lot over the top, they are totally disregarding the fact that those people are going to be killed and be cannon fodder and that their hope is that in in that slowing the enemy down, the next lot or the one after that might get through. Um, they they have to make those decisions. And, and that's the role of the captain in a military organisation is to say, you know, I'm sorry, doctor, but you are the best place to do this task which we need done. Um, and, and I'm not going to sit and have a, you know, 10 hour discussion about your, your sentience and your rights as a, as a, as a person, because I have to make the command decision. And, and we might not like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not a pro uh, army sort of person, but if you are in that structure, that's part of the deal. And, and I think they all know that. And that's why in the end, Chakotay, despite thinking 
uh, that it's, it's not a good decision, says, I will obey your orders. Um, because the alternative would be worse, at least in the military imagination. The alternative of Chakotay saying, no, you're wrong, so I'm going to lead a mutiny, would be worse uh, than saying, I think you're wrong, but I will obey your orders. Yep. I, I agree that military commanders have that, but that doesn't excuse them from thinking about their decisions, Lindsay, or thinking about the well-being of people with them. And she doesn't have four voyages to send three lots of shock troops over the trench. No. You know, she's got one. Yeah, yeah. And and it is the primary um, mission that she has that she's self-stated to get the crew home. Um, and and so in some ways she's almost in conflict with her own. She's got exactly. She's, she, she's damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. I do like that 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 conversation does move from appealing to the greater imagination and dealing in prayer to actually what what happens if we make a deal with the devil. Um, and mm. and that, so that, mm. I thought that was a really interesting and artistic flip to actually go. Um, you know, um, uh, could, could, am I thinking about this in the wrong way? Uh, is there a time for the profane as well as the sacred? Well, that's an interesting question. Mm. But uh, yes. I mean, I think um, I, I love that all that bit with um, Leonardo about imagination. And um, uh, my quote of the week is the one about, you know, how he finds that sometimes the world around me drops away replaced by worlds being created and destroyed by my imagination. Uh, and I just love that as a, a description of what we're doing in interacting with um, uh, sci-fi uh, literature and, uh, and presentations on, in TV and whatnot, is, is we, we are engaging in what the artists have done in creating and destroying worlds in their imagination. And I, I love that. But the, the interesting next phrase is a way to focus the mind. And I thought that was really fascinating because we often think of imagination as this sort of wandering, uncontrolled thing. Mm. But uh, Leonardo here is putting his uh, finger on the fact that sometimes the imagination is a way to, to focus the mind and to actually come to a breakthrough. And, and that's what I see in, in Janeway is, is that she has, in a sense, sought out a greater imagination and imagined something that she never would have even thought of before. Um, mm. Let's ally with the devil. Um, and and I, I, I love it. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I think even more so that, that it's actually a creation of light on the wall that's actually making this profound statement. So it's very meta that he's actually... He is something that is created and destroyed by the imaginations of others. So we're actually being educated by the narrative, which, like you said, Lindsay, is exactly what it is that we're attempting to do with this podcast um, and, and, and working our way through. Um, I didn't want to skip too far past uh, Da Vinci without recognising one of the greatest contributors to science fiction and fantasy television media, John Reese davies who plays Da Vinci in this, and, and how amazing it is that such a a huge titan of the science fiction and fantasy world would actually agree to come on with this tiny little bit part. Um, for those who are not familiar with John Reese davies work, he's, he's Gimli, you know, no one throws a dwarf. Uh, he's uh, Indiana Jones's uh, best friend, uh, you know, uh, um, Indy, let us go. You know, like he's, he, he's actually been through so many different roles and appears in science fiction and fantasy 
Um, so to see him here um, is is fantastic, and he always gets a cheer when he appears as a panel at any kind of uh, fantasy or comic con or places like that because he's a uh, he he's he's someone who contributes to the big picture whilst um, not actually taking up uh, lots of space. Uh, he's a shadow on the wall, really. I thought he did really well. I really enjoyed the part of Leonardo da Vinci. You know, I thought the. the it was only a small part, but the lines, as you point out, Lindsay, were excellent. Mm. And the provocation that that character manages to produce in this short space of time and how he played it, I thought was really, really well done. Yes, and I, don't, I don't mean, fear, it, it, we it, see it, Da Vinci again, so he, he'll be back. <laughs> He's back. Oh, He's that's back. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it made me, watching this made me just wish so much that we had this technology because I think, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic to be able to stretch your own imagination by playing these what-ifs, uh, not just with totally imagined characters, but with characters from, from history and, and events and places uh, in history and around the world. I, I, I want my own holodeck now. Well, let's have a play with that. Uh, three people you'd construct in the holodeck to sit down and have a chat with. Uh, <laughs> who comes to mind? Oh, that's a good question. Well, number one for me is absolutely Isaac Asimov. I would just love to, to chew the fat with Isaac Asimov about robots and scriptures and thinking and human beings. Look, I'm going to be very boring and very predictable and say I want to talk to Jesus and see if he really said all that stuff and what he meant by it. <laughs> yeah, 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 along similar lines, I think uh, I'd love to have a conversation with Paul, uh, Saul, who became Paul, mm. and actually be mm. able to say, okay, how does this work and, and, and what were you thinking here and what was it like to actually deal with those conflicted Corinthians? Um, you know, I think that would be an interesting conversation to have as well. I wouldn't also mind having a chat with someone in Galatia. How did you see Paul? Mm. Was he yep. really just a pain in the butt, as I suspect? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what was going on there? <laughs> yep. Well, look, I, I mean, I agree entirely. I, I mean, obviously, as, as Christians, it would be fascinating to meet Jesus. Um, and Paul, you know, I, like I think from a, a sociological perspective, I think those who suggest that Christianity is actually an invention of Paul are not far wrong. Um, that, that, you know, Jesus may have been the progenitor and the seed, but it really was Paul who, who took that story and, and made it something that changes world. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with, agree with and not um, always for the better. both your picks. No, 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 absolutely. Yeah. But whether we're talking about, you know, uh, Shakespeare or Van Gogh uh, or, you know, um, um, uh, people who have uh, explored or travelled or, or even, you know, more recently, you know, to have a chat with Neil Armstrong. Um, Tesla. Would be just absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so there are some amazing figures to actually um, to Gandhi, um, you know, like uh, um, the, the, the holodeck might unlock for us. However... Mm. The caution I would actually put up is, is that the holodeck oh. is as literarily programmed as any book or movie or other, exactly. other portrayal. So therefore, um, what we meet may not actually be a true, true um, representation if we, as if we could time travel, but actually uh, other, uh, uh, an amalgam of other people's understanding. Um, and so to, to decide 
for want of a better word, that the image that was projected to us was gospel would be would be a mistake uh, and dangerous. In fact, all we'd be looking at would be, to quote uh, Da Vinci in this, a shadow on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, actually, to take it a bit further, uh, Will, um, the kind of thing that comes to me as I watch uh, episodes like this one particularly is I wonder to what extent does the um, the computer in, in generating the holographic matrix not just draw on history, but actually draw on the the subject, on Janeway in this case. In other words, yes. is the Da Vinci that Janeway meets the Da Vinci that Janeway needs to meet mm. uh, yeah. because of her own uh, brain patterns and whatever, and, yep. and therefore has the ability to unlock uh, some new thinking for her. Uh, um, I, you know, we're never given that kind of detail, but but that kind of comes to my mind as being mm. an interesting idea that it's actually also drawing on on the subject and their brain patterns to create the the environment. Mm, that's a good thought, Lindsay. Because it does, you could make an argument for that by how these scenes with um, Da Vinci plays out. I think play out. Yep. And, and we do it too. Um, you know, we create uh, heroic versions of the people that we admire. Um, and, and sometimes people have experiences where you might go to a con and meet John Rhys Davies and discover that he's actually a complete prick. Um, no, and that, uh, you, you yeah. know, that he, he, he and, and I think well, we've all had experiences. I, I'm not saying that, John, um, that's certainly not. And if you'd like to come <laughs> on our podcast, um, we would love to have you here. So if you're listening out there, um, but there is that, um, there is that sense in which one of the worst things you can possibly do is actually meet your, your heroes because they won't, they won't live up to our, our construction of them. That's a real possibility, and I don't think we consider it enough. It's like thinking you can go back. Um, you know, I've worked out you can never go back to the house you once lived in and it'll be the same as you remember mm. it. And In fact, it can be, you know, I've done that and found a really big weedy garden and it seems to be really neglected and it was a bad move, you know, mm. just... Sometimes you should, shouldn't do that. And I think it's the same with our heroes. We've created this romanticised thing in our head and it's never going to quite, the reality will never quite live up to that. Mm. Everyone has a scorpion. <laughs> we probably while, do. While we're talking about imagination and the role of imagination, um, one of the things that occurred to me as I was watching this was about Species 8472 and I think Kess... Uh, you know, because of her telepathic connection with them, uh, talks about how they come from another alternate uh, parallel universe or whatever, where they are entirely alone. Um, and, and then later when they're coming through, she's talking about the hatred and the malevolence. And it, it made me think, I wonder, you know, is, is their hatred and their malevolence um, actually linked to the fact that they are totally alone in mm. their own universe and so they see that as the right way to be and when they find a way into this universe with other life forms they want to get rid of them so it's back the way they understand it and it, it made me think about humans and the possibility of uh, interstellar uh, connection with the sentient beings and and um the, the need to practice not being alone. Because at the moment, uh, to all intents and purposes, we are alone in our universe. There is no other intelligent uh, species with whom we can have uh, communication, even if there are some out there. Um, and, and in a sense, 
the role of imagination is to play the what ifs of what if we're not alone, how would we respond, how would we react, and to start to flesh out and 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 make fuller our ability if we ever do encounter another species uh, to do so in a, a positive and constructive way and not like species eight four seven two. So this is important stuff. We we've got to we've got to pretend that there are people out there just in case there are. I well, I to... don't think I, I want to meet species eight four seven two. Yeah. Well, we are we are going to see more of them in the future as well, but that's okay. Um, I I wondered too, you know, how it came to be that they were the only species in there. Like, did they kill everyone else? Did they did they biologically assimilate like they were doing to 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 um to to the Borg and to others like they that you know are they um is I mean the Borg opened the dimension into their space um so that's interesting um uh, you know how do we you know uh, is it their nature that actually made them alone in their universe did they did they mm. destroy everybody mm. else around them and is that why they were alone or were they created uh, or did they come into existence as the only being in that fluidic space because they could only survive there but i would imagine probability suggests to me that it's highly likely that there were others there but they actually just wiped them all out and and so the ultimate assimilating colonizer actually becomes the only creature left in the world which is really the end state for the Borg in our universe as well, if they continue on their line. So, yeah, I, I think that raises a whole bunch of questions about the consequences of assimilating colonisation, um, is that what mm. you get left with is this uh, bitter, strong and powerful supreme race that actually um, is of no use to anyone. Well, you have to wonder what they get out of their life. And I've wondered also what the Borg get out of their existence. They don't seem to have any existence out of being in their cubes in their little pods, mm. um, unless they're chasing people who have stupidly projected themselves onto their um, into one of their cubes or where they are. Um, it just seems to be an existence of waiting to integrate the next species. That's right. You know, do they play golf? Do they go and sit <laughs> by a lake? Do you know what I mean? What do they do in their lives that gives them any joy other than destroying other species? No, I have to wonder on, that. <laughs> later on, Elizabeth, we discover a great quote from uh, one of our future crew members. The Borg do not sit. Um, so, at so, all, but, ever. But, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think that's a really interesting question, and Elizabeth. And, and I think, for me, this episode actually sows seeds that, that we explore later with Borg. That, that actually does show a difference between the Borg and species 8472. Um, and, and I think it's actually untrue to say that species 8472 assimilates, but in a different way. And, and, and if you go back to the conversation in the um, medical bay, um, uh, uh, Janeway, you know, actually asked the question, is, is Harry being transformed, i.e. assimilated, made to be one of the species 8472? And the doctor's answer is, no, he's just being eaten. In, mm. in other words, um, it, it's, it's not that he is going to become a new one of the species. He's simply going to be food for the species. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's a difference with the Borg that is quite interesting because the Borg, despite their sort of, uh, you know, unilaterally wanting to take over everything, they do want to gain 
uh, the technological and biological distinctiveness of the new, um, uh, you know, uh, species that they encounter. They want to grow. They want to develop and have new things added uh, to their understanding of themselves and of the universe. And and I, I think, um, in a way, for me, this is is the the basis on which Janeway's decision makes sense. That if you're caught between these two totally imponderable forces and i think the thing you know chakotay's let's just go off and live on a planet somewhere if you actually see the future and and you see that these two species are going to war it out and one of them's going to win i don't want that to be species 8472 because my nice hanging around on a planet you know, a few light years away is not going to last long because they they are going to take over everything and kill everyone. At least the Borg seem to have this desire to explore and in investigate. And I think for me, that's the chink that if I was Janeway says, I want to do a deal with the Borg, not with Species 8472. I read a fascinating article and I'll put a link for it up later on. But at the time that this was produced, we we're in the midst of or the height of the Cold War. We were actually at this point where things were coming together and that this this could be a commentary um, on capitalism, consumption, which is what 8472 is doing, and assimilation, communism, which is actually about um, making use of and, and connecting all the parts of society. And, 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 and I think you're right that, that when caught between consumption, if our only two options are consumption or assimilation, um, then we've actually, we devalue the entire of creation. Um, and um, and, and I, like, I think that's a fascinating thing to, to explore. I think you need to ask the question too, Lindsay, with what you're saying. Yes, it's true. From what I've seen of the Borg, I get that they're always looking for ways to biologically improve themselves and get more knowledge and learn new things. But for what purpose? Their mm. purpose of wanting that information just seems to be to take over more species. Um, it's not to play golf better. It's not to sort of, you know, develop really good literature. It's not to do something of greatness. It's to just go out and colonise and assimilate more species. That, but, but to me, Elizabeth, seems to be their purpose. The ultimate consumer is actually doing the same thing at the other end of the spectrum. I mean, oh, if I'm not just, defending that. Yeah. I'm so, not defending so that. But for they're both what the purpose? same. Yeah, yeah. Purpose and meaning become really, really important when we're yeah. caught between assimilation and consumption. Because when my, Lindsay, mind you, you talk about that knowledge, why do they want it? Mm. Mind you, I, I mean, I think the interesting thing, and, and we don't really explore this very much, um, you know, with the Borg, but, but the interesting thing is when uh, Species A472 comes at the end, they blow up the planet. And I think that that's interesting because I don't think we often think about Borg on planets. Um, and the life of a Borg on a planet might be quite different from the life of a Borg in a cube. Uh, and, and, you know, so in, in a sense, I don't know, maybe they do play golf, but it's just the ones <laughs> on the cubes are the soldiers who are going out, you know, winning the wars. They don't get to play golf. Uh, but the ones that are on the planets, um, you know, are, are playing golf and, and enjoying the well, uh, biological uh, distinctiveness that gives them a better golf swing. 
they do get to play golf though because the entirety of the Borg Collective is linked together. So that means ah. that the Borg out in space is actually linked experientially to the Borg on the planet playing golf. So what one Borg knows, all the Borg know. So they actually can have a, a, a multitude of experiences um, sharing um, the upload links with each other. Well, like they it. could, but I still have to question what is their purpose other than just assimilation and destruction? Look, whenever we break a species down into numerical values, uh, like, uh, you know, the Cardassian species 2000 or the uh, uh, Ferengi species 1806 um, or uh, the Romulan 3783, um, you know, when we, when we give number designations to individuals, we turn them into two-dimensional caricatures. And that is the danger of both consumption and assimilation is that everybody gets broken down into their component parts and purpose and meaning gets lost. Well, I also thought the depiction of Species 8472 is a caricature because they've pictured them as some overgrown embryonic lizard. And mm. I think that's... When you do that, it makes it so other, so alien, mm. so that foreign, so different. Yep. <laughs> and that's kind of planned. And, you know, you're meant to be repulsed by it because it's not something that you can immediately relate to. And Where is the Borg? What is that? <laughs> the, the Borg are a, a nice, you know, cuddly uh, two, two, no, no, two no. arms. But at but least they're anthropomorphic. They're humanoid looking. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they've got humanoid faces and they've got an arm and a leg on each corner. And, you know, they're something that you can look at and say, well, I can see myself kind of in them. But you look at a, a sort of overgrown reptilian embryo and you think you recoil from that. I have to say, too, that this is a big step forward in budget for the Voyager series. Yes. Uh, lots of CGI. Um, yes. Uh, you know, no more puppets or makeup here. We're actually doing something. Um, and and for, for the mid-90s when this is out, it was actually, I think, you know, you look back at CGI sometimes and you go, oh, my God, that is just so bad. I watched uh, Terminator with my youngest Charlie the other day and thought to myself, this is just repulsive. The way that the skeletal robot was moving was just really bad. Um, but but for the, at this period, they, they've really made some significant advances in CGI. I thought they'd done really well, actually. Uh, but I have to say it wasn't so much the critter that I was taken with, though I think he was done very well. It was Janeway inside the cube. Mm. and how that cube looked and, you know, how it was depicted and how they move around in it. I thought that was really well done. I was fascinated by that. It's amazing how a bit of budget can actually make a big difference. It can make a huge difference because it's hard to take something seriously that's so under budget, it just looks like a comic book. Like Doctor Who. Yes, like <laughs> Doctor Who. <laughs> but that's kind of its trademark. That's how yeah, that's it right. started. Yeah. And people have gotten used to that as part of the quirkiness of it. But, you know, if you do it in Star Trek, it just looks cheap and nasty. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, you look at the modern Trek versions and, and every now and then I'm just totally blown away. I look at a, a particular scene and I think, oh, my, that is that is How did so that? good. That <laughs> yep. It's just yeah. so incredible. Um, yeah, yep. so it's great. Uh, a long way from the the sparkles in the glass of water to make the transporter beam happen in the, uh, the original Star Trek. So. Yes, yes, especially think, that skeletal lock. <laughs> one one of the other things that I, I yeah, wanted to bring up, um, and you know, I'm showing my pro Janeway ness here. 
um, is is that they're facing overwhelming odds, and and whether you agree with her decisions or not, Janeway is in the situation of having these incredible overwhelming odds, looking for any advantage, looking for any way out, any way that she can actually uh, achieve her goal, which is to get home, um, and and it immediately put me in the mind of thinking about. Um, you know, the, the desperation of refugees and asylum seekers yeah. uh, trying to get out of terrible, terrible situations and making decisions. And some of those decisions we might think, well, that's not a good decision. That could lead to danger. Uh, you know, there could be pirates on the sea. Why do you want to be in a boat? You might get capsized. But but forgetting just how desperate they are, that, you know, yeah. they're not in a situation where they can weigh up different alternatives and say, oh, well, you know, maybe this one's better than that one. It's like any way out is the only way out, and I've got to take it. That's true. Um, you know, when I look at Afghanistan, if I was a female in a progressive family there who'd made a noise before the Taliban um, resumed control of it, I'd be looking for any passage out of there too because yep. you just know they're going to be hunted down and killed and something horrible happened to them. So I understand what you're saying. But my point before with Janeway was when she said, if we don't deal with it, we won't get home. I am not buying the Borg and Species 8472 guard every dimensional inch of that space. Mm, I'm yeah. saying there could have been some other alternative that was never explored. And Janeway here is much more black and white mm. than I thought she was. Her character mm. is depicted as really saying there's this or there's this instead of her saying let's explore other things she just won't do it which i'm not used to with her yeah look and that happens to us under stress um as we become stressed uh, uh you know our range of options often will decrease and we can find ourselves in a position where we're, we're moving down into a very binary position we end up with just yeah. fight or flight um and uh, and so i guess it's nice to see some of the the humanness of Janeway actually experiencing that stress and limiting her options. And as you said, not sleeping, not eating. Um, the, uh, this, this is actually quite a, a, a good uh, portrayal of, of somebody who's actually not coping under immense yeah. levels of stress. Well, that's what I felt. And I mm. thought that was a little disappointing. But in the, on the other hand, it shows she's human. But then on the other hand, she's a human with immense power in this mm. small world that she can control. Yep. Well, and, and in the end, you know, you, you judge a tree by its fruit, as uh, someone or other in, in history said. So, you know, we'll just <laughs> have to see what happens, you know, in the next episode and the one after that, you know. That's Do, correct. Yes, I guess we will. What, was it worthwhile or not? I'm stressed we, thinking about it. Before we move on, <laughs> we, we must talk about Harry. Oh, um, ha poor Harry. Harry, Harry, Harry. Uh, still oh. an ensign, Harry. Here and we go. Kill him again. <laughs> what, what have we done? We, we we've had Harry be genetically altered and seduced by alien females. We've had uh, we've had uh, uh, Harry uh, be be uh, transported into the sarcophagus of another another species' death death place, and now he's being consumed from the inside by you species. You forgot he'd been blown into space too. Blown into space uh, <laughs> when the Vidians came after them, like. Uh, uh, this this it's it's kind of like the writers go okay we need somebody to demonstrate just how dangerous and awful the situation <laughs> is right Harry you're in <laughs> and Janeway so, saying so to we... him fight it Harry that's an order come on fight it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, look, uh, uh, you know, was was the tear too much, or or, or did it tug at uh. your heartstrings? <laughs> Good old Harry, Harry. And look, we're only halfway through here. Uh, Harry has a lot more to deal with um, over the mm. next seven years without getting a single promotion. So, um, poor Harry. I, I have to He's... say. Uh, He's like a scapegoat, you know, as you say. We need someone to have a vile disease or be killed in some phantasmagorical way, but we'll resurrect him. Harry, get on the podium, you know, you're the one. It's it's like he's the ultimate red shirt that you can just use again and again and again, you know? Yeah. I, I wonder whether or not too, and and I mean, this might be this is really just looking at it from a from a I guess a socio political perspective, but but being the Asian sidekick that he is in this and, and, mm. and I don't say that with, with, with any feeling of my own, but that's how this has been written. That there is this sense that what we've got here is a minority that we can experiment on. Um, we can demonstrate um, how dangerous. So he's a, he's a pseudo red shirt in that um, what could happen to Harry could happen to any of the other cast members. But 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 um, there there is this inherent anachronistic racism that actually exists during the '90s where we would actually go, um, oh goodness me, it happened to the to the to the uh, Asian character. Oh, it could happen to the others. Um, I, I hope he pulls through, and I'm glad it wasn't you know one of the others. So, so that I mean, sci-fi is guilty of this a little bit of actually saying, "Ah, oh, we'll we'll actually inflict um, something dangerous on the minority to actually um, um, scare the majority um, in a way that actually um, causes them to believe that something is is really a threat." I've never thought of that. I have to say, Will, but then again, I didn't watch this at the time it was produced, which might mm. have given me a different perspective. Mm. Well, and, and I was listening to a, an Asian-American uh, speaking on a podcast the other day and um, uh, reminding me of uh, um, an idea of the, the model minority and that Asians mm. are not only seen as a minority, but they're seen as, as the good kind of minority, you know, the ones which obey the rules and, and, and try and fit in and, uh, you know, follow the, the good capitalist route. Uh, when they move to a, a capitalist country and all that sort of stuff, and and so um, in a sense, you know, we can we can torture Harry, and we know that Harry will always still do the right thing and follow orders and obey, um, you know, the rules and, and whatever. Um, and so I think that's part of the the trope too, um, is that he's not just a minority we can fiddle with, but he's the the minority that we know will do the right thing because the Asians are the, the model minority. And so, yep. you know, there's all sorts of racist things there. It's funny you say that, Lindsay, because I've been noticing on advertisements on TV lately, we're seeing a lot more Asians. You know, the ad in Melbourne, there's an Asian behind the desk. There's that health fund ad um, with the dude sitting in his underwear to begin with, and he's clearly Asian. He also appears in another ad that I can't remember what it is now, and as does, and then there's the, um, is it the Amy ad where the house front falls down? The chief of the Amy women is an Asian. I've just noticed there's lots of faces that are not white appearing, and I'm thinking, is this because they were trying to appeal to that particular group of people? Um, or is it something like you're saying was happening, you know, a couple of decades ago? I just thought it an interesting observation. I don't mm. think I've seen so many Asian phages in advert advertising as I have in the last 12 months. 
Um, I, I also found it fascinating just hearing you talk about the podcast there, Lindsay, that uh, we've been listening to the same podcast because, uh, oh. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it was Nate Nakayo who was actually yes, making those yes. statements um, uh, from the, I think it was God Is Not Given, um, but also he's a co-host on the Full Mutuality podcast. So a big shout out yes. to them. Um, I've actually begun negotiations with Nate uh, over Discord to see whether or not I might be able to get him as a guest on Deep Faith 9 to talk about oh, this very fantastic. issue. Um, and the portrayal of uh, minority groups, and uh, he's agreed. So that's fantastic. So, yeah, if you're wanting to check out some of that stuff um, and and sort of just be um, someone who sits and listens in that space, then um, then both the Full Mutuality podcast and the God Has Not Given podcast are, are, are great um, spaces to do that, um, and uh, I, I highly recommend them. Well, I'm I'm really excited for uh, next time we get together because I I'm so wanting to watch part two of this and uh, and see how they get out of this. You know, they're being attacked by species eight four seven two. They're held in the tractor beam of the Borg. The captain's not even on the ship. She's in the Borg cube. Is she going to get blown up by species eight four seven two? Oh, oh, it's so exciting. I'm and sure I've managed a lock onto her bones, Lindsay. <laughs> I'm even more excited about it because, because Lindsay, we might actually be able to watch the episode together, uh, and, yeah. uh, and and even have a have a chat about it. Uh, and because you'll be you'll be down here in Geelong next uh, Friday, so we'll have the opportunity to uh, to record in person um, as um, as we look at this next episode. I'm sure I'll hear you both from here as well. As <laughs> you watch it together. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure I'm looking forward to it or not. I found watching that episode quite stressful, and I don't think it's going to get any better before it resolves itself. Uh, no, it's going to get <coughs> it's going to get worse. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but but look, uh, a lot of commentators on Voyager um, uh, will say that this is the turning point. That the Scorpion Part One and Part Two is a, is a massive shift in terms of budget, uh, in terms of writing, in terms of uh, of, of cast. Um, where where Voyager for the next uh, um, what four five six and seven um, series really takes off uh, and begins to 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 shine in a new way. Um, we leave behind some of this episodal fix it in forty five minutes trope that we've been dealing with, and 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 I think we have and and it'll be interesting to talk about this Elizabeth as we go on. But I think we leave behind the reliance on the God is in the machine um, answer Excellent. for everything as well. Um, I mean, that will still appear, obviously. Although um, we get uh, Diabolus in the machine today, uh, this time, don't we? Uh, really, <laughs> to, to, to it, solve yes, this Diabolus is in the mix at the moment. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, until next week, um, this has been the Voyager podcast where we explore faith and science fiction uh, in a theological framework. Um, if you're enjoying um, this, then um, then check out some of our other offerings in the Neverod or even media set uh, with uh, Marvel Universe. Uh, we've done a, a, a section on Loki um, where we've done some, um, some really interesting stuff with WandaVision, talking about grief and loss. Uh, and uh, our next Marvel project will actually be on uh, the episodes of Moon Knight, uh, looking at uh, at uh, the way in which Moon Knight portrays um, a, a number of different areas around ability and disability. So looking forward to um, to, to doing that one as well. Um, 
and, and as always, uh, check us out on Facebook, Never Odd or Even, or support us at Patreon for Never Odd or Even Media. Until part two of Scorpion next week, I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain. Voyager. Season four, we have encountered the Borg. Elizabeth, Lindsay, and Will continue the theological discourse through the Delta Quadrant. Resistance is futile. Irrelevant. Your appeal to my humanity is pointless. I can't be sure, but I think there's more going on here than just a simple hello. Well, I think it's time we get back to our bridge. No argument there. Voyager, Season 4.